With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, we'll have this week's Chill Hour report. But our top story today. Did we forget about the societal price we pay? Secretary Millsap, you have already wasted over a billion of our time. Don't touch me, that's all. A protester tried to interrupt Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack Thursday as he gave his keynote speech at the USDA's 100th Agriculture Outlook Forum. The importance of rural America to this country and its value system, and whether or not as we focused almost principally and primarily on productivity, did we forget about the societal price we would pay? Secretary Vilsack. You have already wasted over a billion of our tax dollars. Over a billion of our tax dollars to bail out the chicken industry. You are responsible for awarding an industry that is making record profits. You have an opportunity. Responsible that is responsible for creating a bird flu pandemic by providing millions of birds with weird squalid You will have your chance. It's a great thing about democracy. No, it is. It's a great thing about democracy. Yesterday, yesterday, I was in a congressional hearing where, where I was told that I didn't care about production agriculture, and now I'm being told that I care too much about it. So. And, and the great thing about this country is that passionate people have opinions and they have the ability to express them. After inviting the woman to sit quietly and stay in the session, the agriculture secretary ignored her continued chanting and continued his own comments. Security escorted out the woman and her two companions. Michelangelo said once, the greatest danger for most of us is not that we aim too high and we miss it, but that we aim too low and we reach it. Let me suggest to you that perhaps back in the 1970s, we may have aimed too low. And we in fact have reached our goal of being incredibly productive. That our agriculture is amazing. Our farmers work incredibly hard. But here are a few statistics that I think are important to note. In 1981, Bob Berglund was leaving this job of Secretary of Agriculture from Minnesota, and he began to have concerns about the societal impact of this focus on just solely productivity. And he said, you know, we may lose farms. And when those farms are lost, we lose the farm families. And when those farm families are lost, we, we lose uh, young people going to the rural schools, and perhaps that will uh, have an impact on rural education. We lose customers for small businesses and maybe that will impact Main Street businesses. We'll, we'll lose population and maybe that will impact and affect our ability to provide basic health care. His concern was for small communities and the impact. Well, he uh, certainly hit it right on the head because since 1981, based on our most recent census uh, that we, we published this week, We've lost 536,543 farms. 
Over a half a million farms, gone. Secretary Vilsack also spoke about the importance of rural America during a news conference following the opening session. For Americans who don't live in a rural area, why should they be well, first of all, they want a more resilient food system. We found out during the pandemic that uh, the more efficient system wasn't necessarily resilient in a time of major interruption. And I think the reality is we have to understand and appreciate that we uh, have experienced this pandemic. I hope to God it's the last pandemic we ever have to experience, but I think folks will tell you that's not necessarily the case. So we need a more resilient food system so that they don't have empty shelves. That's number one. Number two, they, ask, they need to ask themselves, where do all those people who, who, who serve us in the military, where do they come from? And what they're going to find is a disproportionate number of the folks who serve us in the military come from those small towns. Now, the reason I think they do is, is in part because of the value system that they grow up with, which is farmers understand you can't keep taking from the land. You've got to give something back to it. When you grow up around that kind of value system, you realize, you know what, this is a pretty special country. I'm fortunate to be here. What do, I, what do I need to do to make sure that I recognize that? And oftentimes, it's service. So if you want the service ethic to continue to grow and expand, if you want to make sure that uh, you're not stuck in traffic jams, that you have a, a population that isn't, continues to move to larger and larger and larger and larger cities, then you have to have economic opportunity that creates opportunity for folks to live, work, and raise their families in the small communities they came from or the small communities that they would like to go back to. This is a, a data point, which is important. For the first time in 10 years, we've reversed the out-migration from rural areas. More people came to rural America last year than left. That's a really big deal. And I think it's a reflection of things are happening. There is opportunity being created. There's entrepreneurship and people are anxious to take advantage of it. We want to build on that. We'll have more on the forum in upcoming shows. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. In today's National Spotlight, USDA's Farm Service Agency is now accepting payments from direct farm loan borrowers by a new application on Farmers.gov. Rod Bain reports. Borrowers of USDA direct farm loans now have another method of payment. This new pay my loan system, which will allow farmers to pay their loans online. Deputy Agriculture Secretary Social Torres Small says the online feature at Farmers.gov provides producers convenience to make payments versus visiting their local FSA office or submitting payment by phone or by mail. Farmers who are often out doing two jobs in order to make things work have long days out in the fields and being able to have the option if they choose to pay online instead of going into a service center, which will continue to be an option, can help make that day a little shorter for folks. The Pay My Loan feature is the latest in a series of USDA efforts to streamline its farm loan program and loan application process and modernize customer service at local FSA offices. The first one was simplified direct loan paper application. Some folks still prefer a paper application, and so we wanted to make it shorter. And FSA was able to take it from 29 pages to 13 pages. Then in talking with farmers, we heard them say that there's just so many products out there, don't always know where to start. What's the right loan for me? And so FSA developed a loan assistance tool that helps provide customers with an interactive online step-by-step -step guide to identify the direct loan products that might be the right fit for their business needs. There are also available 
online loan applications. So in addition to now paying for their loan online, they can even apply for their loan online. Now, all of this is on top of our service centers. You can walk into an FSA office and receive the same support as well, whether it's identifying which loan to apply for, whether it's applying, or whether it's making your regular payments. The deputy secretary adds that the streamlining process not only impacts FSA loan borrowers. There is about 225,000 payments processed at USDA service centers every single year. And in total, there's about 85,000 loans out there. That's a lot of our people that are spending that time instead of time that could be spent working directly with a farmer to provide assistance as they're applying for a loan or helping identify that right fit for them. So the goal here is to take certain things like loan payments, make those simpler for the farmer as as well as for the USDA worker, and then focus, spend more time figuring out other ways to support the crucial work that farmers do to grow our food. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, going the extra mile shows a commitment to doing things right. In the beef industry, that extra mile is Beef Quality Assurance Certification. Emma Mulvaney, Associate Director of Beef Quality Assurance Programs, shares more. We want to get as many people BQA certified, but what it really means is to be BQA certified, you carry a social license to practice business and sell your product directly to consumers. Doctors, lawyers, teachers have to have a license to practice business legally, and we have a practice, we have a license to practice business socially. If we don't have a buyer of beef, we're not going to raise beef. And so when we choose to get BQA certified, uh, we are sharing that we are doing things the right way on our operation. Recently, our NCBA checkoff funded consumer market research tells us that animal welfare is at the top of consumers' minds when they're asked, what, if any, concerns at all do you have about how cattle are raised for food? So there's a lot of buzzwords that we hear in the industry, antibiotics, hormones, greenhouse gases, emissions. Um, but animal welfare is what consumers always seem to go back to. They want to know who's raising their dinner and where does it come from and how does it get from gate to plate. And what's really unique about being BQA certified is you're taking that first step and you, you know, you can really be an encourager to your other ranchers uh, around you uh, that, that we are doing things the right way. And um, it's something to be proud of. We have over 85% of the beef raised in the United States coming from BQA certified ranchers and farmers. And so we are very proud of that statistic. And through the Raise and Grown campaign, which is where we take stories of families raising cattle and package them up into nice 30-second YouTube ads to serve up to consumers on YouTube, we're able to see that the view rate, people watch these ads from start to finish uh, at about a 30% higher rate than the industry standard. And so it's obvious to us from this ad campaign that consumers really love learning how their cattle is raised from gate to plate. In other livestock news, the last 12 months have been challenging for cultivated meat and seafood companies trying to raise capital. For example, agfundernews.com says Finless Foods is making cutbacks to conserve cash, New Age Eats running out of funds, and Good Meat getting sued by its bioreactor supplier over allegedly unpaid bills. As AgFunder runs the numbers, preliminary data shows that funding for cultivated meat startups peaked at $989 million in 2021, dipped slightly to $807 million in 2022, and then dropped sharply last year, falling 78% to $177 million against a backdrop of a 50% drop in agri-food tech investing overall in 2023. 
While the funding rounds were far smaller in 2023 versus 2022, investors placed a sizable bet on Uncommon, a UK-best startup formerly called Higher Stakes. That investment netted $30 million in funding to scale the production of cultivated pork using patent-pending technology by speeding up the cell differentiation process. Keep feeding the world. I'm Will Jordan for Agnet West. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Ours report. But first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. The supply of pistachios in the global market has been outpacing demand. UC Cooperative Extension Specialist Brittany Goodrich said pistachio acreage and production has been increasing worldwide. The biggest increases are here in the U.S., but then you also have acreage increasing in both Iran and Turkey, which are other major players in terms of pistachio production. So what that means is essentially there's more pistachios on the market right now. And so demand for pistachios has been sort of keeping track with the increasing supply, though the last few years, especially since COVID, there has been sort of an increasing gap between the supply and demand of pistachios, which just means more pistachios carrying over from year to year, which is problematic and why we're seeing some of these lower pistachio prices than we're used to. CropX Technologies has announced the launch of a new product in partnership with Rainkey Irrigation. The new product aims to help refine water management for farmers through field-specific evapotranspiration measurements of crop water use. ET values indicate the total water used by plants and evaporated from the soil, and the new RainKey Direct ET by CropX offers actual ET measurements without additional calculations, aiding farmers in making informed irrigation decisions. By measuring the amount of water that their crops use, the tool gives farmers daily insights into their field's water needs, knowing when and how much to irrigate their crops. Through real-time feedback and field-level accuracy, farmers can optimize water usage supported by the advanced sensor technology. The collaborative initiative aims to empower growers worldwide with practical solutions for enhanced agronomic management decisions. A new weed was found for the first time in California in a Butte County rice field. Rice Farm Advisor Whitney Brim DeForest said growers are encouraged to be on the lookout for white water fire in rice fields. It unfortunately looks a lot like one of our other species, which is red stem, so it's a bit hard to tell apart. But if people think that they have it, we really want to get out and take a sample. So, And we don't unfortunately have a lot of information on that one right now, except for that it is there. We don't have control information or anything for people. But again, we want to be on the lookout. And we are working on that info. We just don't have it yet. Now I'm going to be doing a bigger literature review. It it is found in other parts of the world. So maybe there's information from other places as well and control. We just don't have the current information for herbicides that are registered here in California. But like I said, we are working on it. Hopefully it's just this one field. But uh, we would like to start tracking it if people find it in other places. A new weed was found for the first time in California in a Butte County rice field. Rice Farm Advisor Whitney Brim DeForest said growers are encouraged to be on the lookout for white water fire in rice fields. It unfortunately looks a lot like one of our other species, which is red stem, so it's a bit hard to tell apart. But if people think that they have it, we really want to get out and take a sample. So, And we don't unfortunately have a lot of information on that one right now, except for that it is there. 
we don't have control information or anything for people. But again, we want to be on the lookout. And we are working on that info. We just don't have it yet. Now I'm going to be doing a bigger literature review. It, it is found in other parts of the world. So maybe there's information from other places as well and control. We just don't have the current information for herbicides that are registered here in California. But like I said, we are working on it. Hopefully it's just this one field, but uh, we would like to start tracking it if people find it in other places. The California Irrigation Institute is hosting its 62nd annual conference in Sacramento, February 26th and 27th. The theme of this year's conference is Fluid Futures Adapting to Extremes and will be held at the Hilton Sacramento Arden West. Presentations will highlight a wide variety of topics related to the future of agriculture and urban irrigation. Speakers include representatives from the Department of Water Resources, California Climate and Agriculture Network, Bureau of Reclamation, and Association of California Water Agencies. Some of the agricultural sessions will highlight what's new in the world of grants and incentives, along with adapting agriculture to climate realities. Joint sessions will provide insight on the effects on soils from climate extremes and leveraging AI to maximize water use. More information about the California Irrigation Institute's annual conference is available at caii.org. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. How the USDA is helping small farms, that's coming up on this line of hours. Testifying before the House Agriculture Committee Wednesday, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack explained how the USDA is helping small and mid-sized farms. Climate Smart Agriculture Commodity Initiative, uh, helping smaller sized producers get a value-added proposition. Having farmers qualify for ecosystem service markets and when they do the right conservation and there's a conservation benefit and a greenhouse gas reduction or carbon being sequestered, they're getting paid for it. Uh, the use of the Renewable Energy for America program to reduce their cost of electricity and maybe even producing excess electricity, which could be combined with their neighbors to provide a transition for the rural electric cooperative, creating a new energy commodity. Expanded access to processing, local processing. Uh, over 400 projects invested by USDA in the last three years. The American Farm Bureau Federation seeks modernization of the Agricultural Foreign Investment Disclosure Act. Michael Clement shares more on this topic with significant public interest. The Agricultural Foreign Investment Disclosure Act, passed in 1978, provides tracking and monitoring of investment in U.S. agriculture. However, American Farm Bureau Federation economist Danny Munch says the process is due for an upgrade. Currently, that process hasn't been updated in over 40 years, so USDA has opened public comment to provide input on how the form could be improved to answer questions about what other questions could be added to make the survey better and just other general advice the public wants to give on how do you provide better information on this topic. Munch says the process currently is filled with inefficiencies and inadequate information. Right now, only the predominant investor is listed when you fill out the data form and only their country is listed. So you have a lot of minority stakeholders that aren't listed and basically shielded from the public data. Right now, the USDA is also statutorily limited in only going up to a third tier level of ownership. So say you have a number of entities within one another or a shell corporations, it is very difficult to get past that third tier of ownership. So you might not always be ultimately getting to that last country of ownership that might be the most useful to know about. Munch says AFBF seeks better enforcement in addition to modernization. The form is self-reported and penalties have only been put in place for late reporting, not not reporting. So better enforcement of the act in general and in filling out the form is our first priority. Secondly, we commented and provided a lot of intel on what questions could be added and expanded to get at what are foreign investors doing with the land, as well as just general modernization of the program using an online system. Learn more at fb.org. Michael Clements, Washington. 
A USDA program with an unusual name supports states and territories in their plant pest and disease prevention efforts, including recent project funding awards, Rod Bain reports. Investments in plant pest and disease protection, as announced recently by Agriculture Undersecretary for Marketing and Regulatory Programs Jenny Moffitt to the recipients of this funding states and territories, and the agriculture directors and commissioners that serve them. We're announcing $70 million for 374 projects in all 50 states. Plus the District of Columbia, Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands, and Puerto Rico. The explanation of what is known as the Plant Protection Act's Section 7721 program is provided courtesy of Samantha Simon of the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. It grants USDA the authority to provide funding to strengthen our nation's infrastructure for pest surveillance, detection, identification, and threat mitigation. It also safeguards the nursery production system and responds to plant pest emergencies. The program is a creation of the 2008 Farm Bill and contains two distinct entities. It established the Plant Pest and Disease Management and Disaster Prevention Program and the National Clean Plant Network Funding Program. So those two programs together, we just call Plant Protection Act Section 7721 or PPA 7721 for short. So regarding the breakdown of recent PPA Section 7721 funding. USDA is providing $62.97 million in funding to support 353 projects under the Plant Pest and Disease Management and Disaster Prevention Program. We're also providing $7.75 million to support 21 projects under the National Clean Plant Network. Undersecretary Moffitt explains the gamut of project types and protection methods funded under this program. This is about prevention of plant pests and diseases. This is about trapping. This is about investment in detector dog teams. This is about making sure that we're doing surveillance and we've got the infrastructure in place for pest detection. And she acknowledges the support is needed for state-specific efforts to address various plant pest and disease threats. I've been able to visit Ohio and to meet with our team that's working on box tree moth. I was able to go to Pennsylvania to see the work that's happening on spotted lanternfly. Unfortunately, there's no shortage of challenges, and so this funding is really important. Again, a lot of these projects are in partnerships with state departments of agriculture. They're in partnership with universities and researchers. They're in partnership with the folks on the ground who are really doing the hard work. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Now Brian German returns with the Chill Hour Report. In this week's California Chill Hour Report brought to you by Dormex. Wake up your buds with Dormex. We're finishing up our conversation with Masood Kesri today. He's the research director at the Mari Agricultural Research Institute. In an ongoing study, applications of Dormex have been made in pistachio orchards with successful results in bloom synchronization and yield improvements. Kesri explained that the study will continue on to develop more refined information on application timing and give growers an opportunity to get the most efficacy based on the chill conditions in their individual operations, a critical factor in timing applications. I highly recommend growers monitor the chill portion from their field weather station. If they don't have a weather station in their field, I can say monitoring data from the nearest semi station is also very valuable. I also say please consider both chill portion and calendar date for a better decision on the application timing. And while we have two years of research data on Dormac efficacy, we need to do more research 
And we plan to continue our research over more years to gain a better understanding of the details regarding the right timing and research treat response under variable conditions. Kesri offered a suggestion for growers that might be considering using Dormex in their orchards. It would be beneficial to apply it to a few rows at different locations in the orchard, at the beginning, the middle, and at the end. I also suggest to our best particular rows, you know, separately recording the numbers and conduct the comparison. This helps them determine if this chemical is a suitable option for their fields, especially in marginal or low chill years or low chill locations. Kesri said that multiple years of looking at these same trial blocks and incorporating other areas as well is important for getting a wider scope of data. It is important to record research data in the same field over a couple of years. We'll have different fields so we can do the research in the other fields too. And this year might be a little lower chill year compared to last year. We are a little behind chill portion accumulation right now compared to last year, the same timing. So I can say that this year is specific, can be different from last year. And so we will have the research in these fields and also in the other fields too. And information from the UC Davis Chill Calculator shows that as of February 13th, the Durham Sima Station has logged 63.6 portions under the dynamic model with 871 hours below 45 degrees. The station in Manteca has registered 59.9 portions with 713 hours. There have been 929 hours in Merced with 58.3 cumulative portions. In five points, there have been 763 chill hours, equating to 56.9 portions. Finally, the Simis Station in Shafter has registered 53 portions with 751 hours. And this has been the California Chill Hour Report brought to you by Dormex. Tune in again next week for another episode. This is the AgNet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back. For today's interview segment, we're at the USDA Ag Outlook Forum, and I'm talking with Ben Nally, Public Policy Director for the Iowa Pork Producers Association. Well, I want to start off talking about Prop 12. We're just going to step right into it with California. And we have been hearing from pork producers around the nation about how this proposition um, in California can affect their operations and what they feel about it. Tell me about your pork producers. Yeah, so, um, you know, we've been watching this all the way since it's been a ballot initiative here uh, in California. And so right now, uh, lots of frustration in pork country with Proposition 12 uh, as California is uh, essentially telling our producers uh, how to raise our pork. Um, We have very strong opinions about that because we don't ask them how to raise their almonds or their strawberries. And so uh, it becomes problematic because right now, Uh, Producers are suffering from average losses of $30 per head the last year. So you're not only dealing with financial stress, but also, um, you know, what are they going to do as far as do they want to sell to California? Do they not want to sell to California? What does that look like uh, in terms of cost with that as well? Is there a risk that producers can start saying, no, we're just not going to mess with it. We're just not going to start sending to California? So I have spoken to some producers that are like, yes, we're not going to, we're just going to um, figure out a different model and, and not sell to that state. And, and as we've seen, we have producers uh, that are um, looking at selling there and some that are, most of them are not just because of uh, the uh, issue there. And so 
Um, it's one of those deals where cost is always an issue. And then when you start seeing other states, I think the biggest concern here among uh, just the agriculture industry as a whole is seeing uh, if you start to see a multiple patchwork of states trying to push different rules uh, and, and laws such as Prop 12, Massachusetts 3, what's, what's going to happen in these other states? Uh, and then that starts to become very chaotic when you look at the supply chain and how you move pigs through uh, the system. Right. I mean, we're talking about 50 different states. We don't need to have 50 different sets of regulations, right? Yeah. And so that's where we're working with the National Pork Producers Council uh, and Congress to try to figure out some sort of legislative uh, solution because uh, Congress has the ability to regulate interstate commerce. So very um, uh, thankful for our Iowa delegation for supporting the EATS Act. Uh, as well as uh, other solutions. I know G.T. Thompson, the chair of the House Agriculture Committee, has um, really been fighting for the pork producers as well as just agriculture in general uh, and trying to find some sort of fix that we can get in the farm bill. So right now, uh, coordinating with the national groups uh, and our producers in making sure that we can continue to move a farm bill as quickly as possible because this is a pressing issue you know, the longer we wait, uh, the the harder it's going to be. Yeah, and let's talk about the farm bill. Um, you mentioned the longer we wait, the harder it's going to be. That's uh, Waiting seems to be the name of the game when it comes to the farm bill, as we have seen in years past as well. But um, what are we looking at? What is your take on it so far? Do you think we're looking at a 2025 farm bill? So this is just my take uh, as I kind of watch it and having uh, worked on Capitol Hill and how these folks like to operate, um, you see this kind of, motion where people like if it's you know this next one is expiring they've already extended it to september 30th 2024 well that's right before the election so what are we going to see here in terms of once that deadline comes back up uh, it's going to be very concerning if we start to see uh, them try to push it down the road to 2025 again so again having those conversations with uh, our iowa delegation as well as the national groups um, talking to Congress and, and just making sure we can get something moving. Uh, you also have a funding, a government funding that uh, is set to expire here uh, March 1st for USDA programs, as well as uh, March 8th for other agencies, depending on how they split that up. So you not only have the farm bill that we're worried about, but it just seems like there's these other areas that continue to slow down uh, momentum there. And that's always concerning when we're trying to get a farm bill passed. Especially in a, a election year, farm bill election year. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of thinking it's going to be a 2025 farm bill. Yeah, and so we're continuing to uh, again talk to our Iowa delegation as well as um, you know our other friends in other states uh, with their members of Congress to just continue to um, push that we need to get a farm bill done here because as you know, uh, when it comes to time of getting a bill done. Uh, you know, once we get to about June, July, you're going to have a hard time trying to see any sort of bill get passed. So I know we mentioned Prop 12, but we're also focused uh, foreign animal disease preparedness efforts uh, in the farm bill. It's something uh, our producers always are uh, concerned about and watching. And so working with those uh, key lawmakers there to get uh, the funding we need for things like the veterinary stockpile, the National Animal Disease Preparedness and Response Program. Uh, you know, things like that, that just continue to make sure we're prepared in case of an African swine fever outbreak. And I can't stop without saying uh, the importance of the USDA's MAP and FMD program. So the market access program, the foreign market development program and how those promote products overseas and making sure we continue to uh, maintain funding as well as maybe see some sort of increase if we're able to do that.
Yeah, that was going to be my question here was, um, you know, we, you and I are speaking here at the USDA's uh, Agricultural Outlook Forum, and I was wondering what are the key topics that you're here to listen to and to be involved in? Yeah, so I really came to, to understand, because um, also in my role, I have uh, environmental programs uh, at Iowa Pork, so wondering what they're doing around that. Um, but I'm also always concerned about what's going on in the economy, because uh, we're looking just beyond pork, as well as what's happening outside of uh, the livestock sector in other areas, and so paying attention there. But uh, it's also a great place to just uh, kind of learn things from other folks you haven't seen in the industry in a while. Uh, as you see folks from all over the country come to this uh, sort of event. All right, so for my final question here, just tell me a little bit about how important the pork industry is to Iowa. Yes, so we are uh, the number one pork producing state in the nation. So what I always like to tell people uh, as comparison here is that we have 23 million pigs uh, grown per year. Next state in line is Minnesota at roughly eight to nine million followed by North Carolina. So that just shows you uh, we produce a third of the nation's pork, and then uh, a third of that also gets exported across the, we, we didn't even get into trade and that sort of thing, but uh, it goes across the world. And so pork production in Iowa, economic benefits, $40.8 billion to our economy. And so very critical to make sure our producers are continuing to uh, produce pork sustainably and in a way that they can continue their livelihoods. Right, and so anybody who eats pork in any other state the Iowa pork production is probably important to them as well. That is correct. Thank you so much for your time today, Ben. Yeah, thank you. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour, and now for more news. Leaders of both parties are calling on Congress to quickly pass a revised farm bill before funds run out this summer. But tensions are re-emerging over the key ideological divide that helped scuttle last year's farm bill. During a House Agriculture Committee hearing on Wednesday morning, members of both parties expressed the importance of not cutting popular food aid and conservation programs. But there's a wide array of competing interests that will make passage a challenge. House Agriculture Committee Chair Glenn G.T. Thompson. In what seemingly is a daily occurrence, taxpayer dollars are being sent to every corner of the country, yet nothing has changed. We're not producing more fertilizer. We're not reducing the cost of production. We're not making food more affordable. However, we are burdening the taxpayer. We're losing ground on the world stage and we are a net agricultural importer. We are less independent, less resilient, and less competitive. Now, Farm Bill is the best opportunity that exists to course correct. Now, I've been clear in my intent, Congress can and must craft a bipartisan Farm Bill that aligns the farm safety net with the needs of the producers expands market access and trade promotion opportunities, strengthens program operations to demand transparency and accountability to the taxpayers, and helping our neighbors in need, but doing so without indiscriminate expansion of our nutri nutrition safety net. One major way that Republicans have proposed to lower those food costs is to increase subsidies to farmers, which requires finding new funds from someplace. Over the past year, Republicans have repeatedly signaled that they would like to strip money from climate and food aid programs and use it to increase payments to commodity farmers, especially in crops like peanuts, rice, and cotton. The leading Democrat on the House Agriculture Committee called on Republicans to put aside proposals to cut billions of dollars in Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program food aid from the forthcoming Farm Bill package. Representative David Scott of Georgia declared those funds to be off-limits. Let's put aside... First and foremost, this proposal to cut SNAP benefits. 
Whether you call it a cut or a reduction of future benefits, Democrats oppose it. We will not cut staff. Scott also called on the GOP to drop his proposal to redirect funds in the Inflation Reduction Act meant for conservation and energy programs. Robbing Peter to pay Paul is not going to result in an effective farm bill. These IRA programs are oversubscribed, so we should not take funding from them to pay for other farm bill priorities. We Democrats feel strongly about this. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack appeared before the committee on Wednesday. In comments to Vilsack, Representative Scott DeJarlay argued that SNAP funds could be going to undocumented immigrants, something he has sparred with the secretary about in past hearings. I'm not trying to be confrontational, Mr. Secretary, and we've had lively discussions in this committee that, you know, Republicans apparently don't care about people who care about food hungry. We do. I'm just saying that to plan this effectively, we need to address these issues. They're real. You can say that people don't receive SNAP benefits, but your own uh, USDA says that they do. And you can say the fraud is low, but those numbers are not correct. And that was exposed this year. I'm not. No, Uh, let's be clear about this. I am saying that people who are not here legally are not allowed to or participating in SNAP. I will acknowledge that we have work to do on fraud, but I will tell you it is our partners who have work to do. It's the states who administer these programs. It's the states that we're encouraging them to get back uh, to, uh, to interviewing folks. States are resisting that. I just sent, recently sent a letter to a number of governors encouraging them to do a better job of overseeing this program. So I agree with you that we need to make sure that we're keeping an eye uh, on, on fraudulent activities. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit AgNetWest online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at AgNetWest on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the AgNet NewsHour from AgNetWest. AgNetWest Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.